This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, welcome to this event. I'm Theorio Francos, and it's my honor to moderate uh, an event entitled Debating Eco-Socialist Futures. I'm joined with um, Drew Pendergrass, Matt Huber, Olufemi Taiwo, and Andrea Vetter, who are four authors of some amazing recent books from Verso and Haymarket Press. In our debate today, we'll be tackling some really big questions about eco-socialism, the climate crisis, and the various pathways forward, which are exactly the kinds of challenges and dilemmas that personally keep me up at night. These are questions about effective strategy, the role of economic, how to think about topics ranging from so-called clean technologies to green capitalism to international solidarity. These questions, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of all the panelists, have no easy answers and thus actually require debate and collective conversation to figure out. Um, so we're going to try to keep that debate comradely and productive. And I think we can sort of do that by remembering the tremendous stakes involved um, and also by staying focused on the substance of eco-socialist politics which might actually reveal some interesting commonalities or maybe unexpected differences between the panelists gathered here today. Um, so without much further ado, I'm gonna just jump into it. We have a bunch of big questions and topics and we hope to also reserve some time for questions from the audience and folks streaming in today. Um, so as I mentioned, today we will talk a lot about eco-socialist strategy, about policy programs, and even the praxis of governance, about who we imagine to take up the collective task of eco-socialist transformation, what conditions might facilitate or block such a project, and also about how eco-socialism in any given place can grasp or articulate the planetary dimensions of climate and capitalism. But before we get into that, I want to start with the idea of world making, which is a concept that directly resonates and even appears in some of our texts. Um, Femi's work on reparations explores this concept quite directly, but I also see it echoed in Drew's work on half-earth socialism, Andrea's on degrowth and just the concept of what our future looks like, and Matt's concept of proletarian ecology. So that kind of raises the question, what kind of world do we want to build together? What would success, however provisional, look like? What is the positive vision or the horizon as a term that some activists use that animates your various proposals and critiques? Um, so world making, thoughts on, thoughts on the vision that we're aiming for, and I'll turn it over to whoever wants to jump in first. I can uh, start. Um, I think uh, one of the ideas that we talk about in our book, Half-Earth Socialism, is this idea of scientific utopia. We draw on this 
thinker Otto Neurath from early 20th century Germany and his uh, concept of, of basically uh, a utopia that's grounded in, in material reality. He, he wanted to think of democratic economic planning as a way of, um, of you know, bringing people in and like making the economy our own, making the economy something that we can see, understand and control and debate where we want to go in the future. Um, and uh, one way that he imagined we could do it is by making these blueprints for the future, these scientific utopias, um, daydreams, rigorous daydreaming, uh, where we might say, okay, here's a future that involves a lot of maybe iron production to build up some consumerist uh, society, or maybe we have a more uh, a society with more leisure time or something like this. And we can work out the details of these proposals and have an informed debate about what future we want to uh, to go down. And we use this idea very rigorously in our book where we talk about um, the trade-offs involved in uh, making our economy safe for the climate and for biodiversity and for all these economic and environmental crises, uh, crises of inequality, and kind of try and think rigorously about the trade-offs involved. Um, so yeah, world-making and scientific utopias is maybe how I think about this a little bit. Maybe I'll add a little bit to that. Um, so a phrase that came up, I think in a couple people's books, I think in Andrea's book, um, is a world in which many worlds could fit. Um, and so I think, you know, I think all of us in different ways are committed to collective self-determination. I think we all see that as part of the kind of eco-socialist um, ethos. And so if you're starting from the idea, not just that we should be rigorously designing utopias, but that you know, that's a thing that could be done multiple ways and maybe would be done multiple ways, then I think you know, what we're dealing with is a kind of deep pluralism of, of the good kind, right? So we could have, you know, different regions that make different design decisions about, you know, what to stress, you know, which, which values to encode, um, but that are all kind of pursuing solidarity in whatever form makes sense in the particular part of the world that they are and with the particular people that are there um, and finding ways to interact across spaces across localities on terms you know other than debt and orders and or so on and so forth so i think that's you know something that as far as i can tell is common ground but you know maybe maybe not we'll find out I, I can jump in. Um, I really like the, the question because I think too often we, we kind of when we think about environmental politics, it's more about visions of kind of world unraveling and world um, crisis and, and these sort of dystopic visions. So I really think it's important that we do kind of have a positive vision of how we're going to rebuild the world. And that to me. Frankly, it was what was so exciting about that kind of moment in 2018, 2019, where the Green New Deal kind of came on the scene and you had these honestly beautiful visions. Uh, you can just think about like the AOC posters or whatever, but the, the, these visions of kind of a, a, a public luxury or a sort of public investment building, huge, beautiful um, kind of public monuments that um, are the solution. To, to climate change, because I think um, we really need to confront the fact that if we're going to um, address this crisis, it is about 
world making. <laughs> it's about, but it's it's mostly about building, right? We have to just build an entirely new energy infrastructure, um, and 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 that's one thing in the global north. But you also need to think about um, just the scale of what we need to do to just inner like bring energy to the masses of impoverished people around the world. I wanted to um, bring up a, a just this mind-blowing stat that uh, energy analyst Robert Bryce was able to bring up where he he figured out his his refrigerator consumes about a thousand kilowatts a year, which is more than 3.3 billion people on the planet. And if you think about if you're going to connect half, basically 45% of the world's population to electricity in a decarbonized way that solves the climate crisis, it's going to take a lot of building. It's going to take a lot of production. And um, that, I think the other thing is environmentalists typically think of building and production as ultimately destructive and, and problematic, if you will. But we have to start to think about how we can, as socialists and as building working class movements that actually try to seize those processes of building and those processes of production to, to not only make them sustainable, but make them just and make them beneficial for the masses of workers that will do the building. And so um, really channeling this kind of working class movement to, to build and produce and create a new world, I think has to be at the core of, of what we do. I disagree. Um, I think it's not so much about building, but about care. Like the world we are envisioning is a world where we truly and deeply care about each other and about all the other beings out there. And only this world could be a world where many worlds fit, as Philly said, because um, a very nice um, word for that is pluriverse as opposed to universe. We need like a pluriverse and very different local solutions. And of course, we need a big, like this is also an old topic, we need a common no, but we need many yeses. And I think like it is really time to let go the fantasies of, of making big plans of this um, building everything anew and shiny, I think it's more the time to think about what does it mean to live in the ruins of capitalism, to achieve a truly just society. And to achieve that, it means ending capitalism, it means ending racism, and it means ending patriarchy. And that is very profound and deep and goes way beyond building new energy infrastructures, although I totally agree, of course, we need new energy infrastructures, but to only build them would just prolong a lot of problems we have. Um, I'm going to jump in as my prog of it as moderator. First of all, I just want to commend everyone. Really fascinating and like broad range of it, of, of answers where there were some, uh, you know, initial disagreements. And I appreciate Andrea flagging one, to, you know, right off the bat, but also some overlaps. And I think actually all of your first opening gambits open up a lot, right? And I encourage you to return to 
things that other people said or elaborate as we go further. But that that was one of the broader questions. So we're going to get into a lot of this more specifically. And there'll be definitely opportunities to talk about infrastructure, you know, as as a as a lens on on the transition or the problems with that, as as Andrea is pointing out. So I'm going to sort of go way back down to earth, as it were, from that world making, you know, however concrete it is, uh, it may or may not illuminate the very present conjunctures that we need to sort of work with and against. Um, so I want to, you know, we're going to kind of come full circle, but I'm going to take us to to kind of the moment that we're sitting in right now. So our panelists are based in the U.S. and Europe, though we may, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, sort of family and connections elsewhere in the world and experiences, so feel free to draw on that. But I want us to analyze the current state of climate policy in those two large jurisdictions and very powerful um, uh, places, geopolitically at least in the world, uh, the U.S. And, and the EU, with an eye to the obstacles and opportunities for eco-socialist politics and for the world making that you all just sketched out, whether we think of that in terms of infrastructure, in terms of care, in terms of scientific utopias, in terms of pluriverses, like, you know, how can we elaborate and develop any of those in the current context that we find ourselves in? Um, so a little more specifically, in the US, as we're probably all aware, a large piece of climate legislation if we want to call it that, there's debate, of course, of whether it counts as climate legislation due to the significant giveaways to the fossil fuel industry. But nonetheless, it, it outlays a bunch of new investment related to climate and energy of some of the sorts that Matt may have been talking about. And it looks potentially likely to pass, um, which is more than we could say a week ago. In 2020, the European Union likewise adopted the Green Deal, um, you know, with the new conspicuously absent, so kind of um, perhaps politically neutered and much more capitalist friendly version of, you know, what we might call the Green New Deal writ large. So those are two big pieces of, of policy paradigms. Um, I think what they both have in common is that they sort of shifted climate policy into the arena of investment, public and private, depending, um, but also of industrial policy. So again, kind of shaping uh, economic sectors and that kind of build out of the of energy infrastructure that, that Matt was referencing. So I have two questions about about these policy initiatives. One is like, basically, how do you evaluate them? How do you evaluate them as climate activists and authors living in the US and EU? You know, is there anything positive to say about these initiatives? Do they provide an opening for more radical climate politics? Or do they simply co-opt and greenwash and actually foreclose pathways? So that's one set of questions. Another, and you don't have to answer both, but I just want to throw them both out there. Another picks back up my theme about investment. So a lot of these policies, as I said, take the specific form of financial incentives, um, whether direct public investment, tax credits, de-risking, a whole range of tools, but all to trigger you know, so-called green investment. So that raises the question of how eco-socialists should think about this emergent green capitalism, which, as we can see, is very dependent on the state. Um, are these green capitalists purely our opponents? Are they the bosses and landlords of the future? Or are they um, actors with which we sometimes enter into tactical alliances because the bigger battle is against fossil capital, right? And we may find ourselves on the same side um, as these green capitalists in certain moments. Um, so those are my questions. How do we think about establishment um, climate policies today? And um, what, what, what do you think specifically about the investment orientation and, and the green capitalism that that kind of gives rise to? I can, I can jump in. Um... The, 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 to me, like socialism is is ultimately about putting um, 
care into the heart of everything we do. <laughs> it's production for for social needs, and and that has to be about caring for everyone and and um and the the earth. Um, but ultimately, as from a Marxist perspective, like you have to take a pretty hard nosed materialist approach that says it's going to be a, a lot easier to care for one another if we have adequate food. And it's a lot easier to care for one another if you have electricity running through hospitals. And so you have to work out some really dicey industrial material production things before a caring world is possible. And it's sort of at the heart of at least Marx and Engels vision of socialism that, that, that the industrial system of production creates the capacity for there to be enough um, enough robust production of everything that everyone needs so that you could actually create the space and time for everyone to have not only time to care for one another, but leisure and freedom and all these kinds of things. Um, but that's just to respond to previous things. I want to get to the the question of the current policy, which to me, um, it's really uh, a really good um, example of what Daniela Gabor calls the Wall Street consensus, where essentially, if you look at the um, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, it's a bunch of tax credits that are trying to incentivize private investment and in particularly the clean energy economy. And very quickly, I want to shout out the work of Sarah Knuth, who's who's done work on these tax credits in the renewable energy space and shows how they have attracted the attention of these what are called tax equity investors, which are pretty much the wealthiest people on the planet who gobble up these tax credits like Bank of America, Warren Buffett. And these are the people benefiting, shielding their wealth from the public coffers in the name of green energy and clean energy. Um, uh, to me, uh, if we're socialists and we're trying to build sort of public ownership, public investment, uh, we have to sort of understand that this kind of private renewable um, industry is probably a core opponent of our struggle. Like, I don't really think we want to align with these renewable capitalists and their allies in Wall Street. Um, I think who we do want to align with are the workers in the energy industry who are, you know, going to do some of the building in these um, renewable energy types of investments and various other clean energy investments. But I would say we don't want to align with these private green capitalists. And I do see it as like greenwashing to a certain degree. I could answer with an example from where I live. Um, so I'm living in the, um, Eastern part of Germany, um, in the post socialist area. And like around the village where I live, there will be built the biggest German, um, agri solar park hitherto. So like it's big solar panels on the, um, on the fields where normally food grows. And it's a big investment by some external investors, like with millions and millions of investments and nothing will be here with the people. Like there is now somebody from our administration um, doing some negotiations that there will be a certain amount of some, like maximum would be 1 million every year coming here to the people. But this is just like a very, very short piece of what this investor will earn. And this is the kind of energy transition that is 
really um, helped with all these laws from the European Union and their New Deal. And so this is really not a good thing for the people and people are opposing this kind of energy transition because it destroys their landscape and they don't have anything in return. But I think there is a is something we can do now and we do. So um, we founded in our village an energy cooperative and um, we do solar panels on the rooftops of public buildings and it's a kind of a public commons partnership you can term this kind of investment. So it's about taking over this means right in the here and now and um, building up cooperatives. And it was cooperatives that started the energy transition in Germany um, like 30 years ago. And then it got outruled by a lot of laws, making it very hard for energy cooperatives to, to work and to be funded. And so, of course, Coming from this, um, being a part of an energy cooperative, we have to struggle and to fight for other laws that um, help us in doing more of this kind of cooperatives. Um, but I really think that in this thinking in terms of commons and in organizing um in this way, like everywhere where we are, like building energy autark villages and cities, really on the municipal level, I think this is a big possibility where change and transformation happens, and it already happens now. Um, does anyone else want to comment on the kind of current climate initiatives on the table in the US or EU or... Um, or on how we relate to green capitalism. And again, I connect those two because I think that as Matt and Andrea in sort of different ways have also elaborated on, these bills do explicitly create new arenas of investment, right? And I think on the one hand, you know, we could really broadly and abstractly agree that such investment is necessary. But I think as Matt and, and Andrea, again, in slightly different but not incompatible ways pointed out, um, there's a real difference in the form, you know, the, the form that the investment takes takes matters. Are we guaranteeing returns for private investors? Are we de-risking for private investors? Um, or are we expanding the public sector? Or are we sort of like decentralizing in certain ways, but also in a way that might be compatible with a public sector approach um, into like energy commons or um, cooperatives, um, a communal ownership and things like that. So uh, just putting that all out there, Drew, um, did you want to add anything? Otherwise, there's tons more to we can get to. I, I can just say something real quick, which is that um, my union sent a, a delegation to the Labor Notes Conference, and I was chatting with a, a friend who went, um, and he was, he'd met some oil workers in L.A., um, and they were interesting because they both were sharing that they wanted to get different jobs, like they were not uh, super happy working on an oil rig. Um, but there are several things in the way. One was it would be a pay cut to move to renewables, but that wasn't even the major thing. The major thing was it would go from a union job with protections that had been won over 50 years or longer uh, to uh, these notoriously nasty uh, solar wind providers where you, it's like almost like contract work. Um, it's very different. And I think that that's maybe an indication of where our alliances are. Our uh, alliances with these green capitalists, uh, that would not be super wise. It's not, um, you know, they may be building the right thing, 
in some abstract sense, although as Andrea pointed out, it may not be in the right place or might not have the sort of democratic input that we would want, but it is broadly the correct object to be building. But, um, but that does not mean that they're an ally in this fight. Um, actually, Drew, that was a great, thanks, first of all, for bringing um, labor also into this question, but also for kind of setting me up for the next question, which expands a lot on the topic that you just brought up of like, you know, who are we talking about when we talk about the collective agents of, of eco-socialist transformation? So I'm going to kind of pivot there. And if we want to come back to this kind of thorny or and sometimes overly stereotype like climate labor divide, we can go that route, but we can also explore this in, in different ways. So I'll kind of uh, I'll pose the question directly. So I want to think about political constituencies and coalitions. Um, you know, one response to, you know, who is the collective agent of, of eco-social transformation would be to say the working class full stop and, you know, sort of without elaboration. Um, I don't know that that is, that's the fairest way to describe Matt's position, but it is a position that he forcefully argues for, right? Um, but we're also going to get into some of those class nuances that his book also addresses, right? So there's one answer to this question, which is like the working class, the proletariat, you know, industrial or otherwise is still the agent of change and that's it. But I think, you know, and I think we probably all agree here that given the politically weakened and socially fragmented condition of working people in the societies in which we live, this response itself raises a lot of questions, right? Um, and of course, there's the fact that throughout the history of socialist struggle, what we might call class traders have also played a really important part, right? So like people like intellectuals and other professionals, some of what, which are, you know, the types of people gathered here today, have played a role historically in socialist agitation. You know, do we define those people as working class? Or again, are they clash traders, um, but but still important? So I guess, you know, a much more direct way to put this would be, what is the class basis of eco-socialist strategy? When we say working class, what is its composition? And maybe more specifically, and get, this gets at some of Drew's points, like what segments of it are most poised to fight for the climate visions that you all outline? Um, as a corollary, what should be the role of the so-called professional managerial class um, which are people in terms of climate, like employees of NGOs or nonprofits or academics, like some of us gathered here, or scientists or other policy specific experts in our broader movement? Like, do those folks have a role? What should it be? Um, and then finally, if you want to go there, I'll just throw out one more. Like, what do we think about overall a broader coalition, like a durable, heterogeneous mass coalition of a similar sort that has um, kind of brought to bear other past social transformations, right? Um, even if we designate the working class, however defined as having a privileged role, are there other actors and how do we build build that mass coalition in a way that endures over time? Um, so lots of stuff, take any point of any part of it, but I'm most interested in the kind of agent of change as you imagine it. All right, I will try to um, address that. I think it really hits... That I think all of us share a really ambitious vision of social change in all of these books. And ultimately, what I would what I say in the book is if we want to actually solve all these problems, it's it's about power, right? We have to be able to build significant power to take on the capitalists that control our food system, our energy system, they control all the things that are causing this planetary back um, uh, breakdown. So if we don't have a, a real sort of theory of change or strategy of how we're going to build that kind of power, um, we're 
we're just sort of visioning <laughs> things about what we'd like to see in the future. And so, you know, whether it's a, a global reparations regime or, you know, a half earth revolution or, you know, the degrowth book does say we're going to fundamentally reorganize the political economy of society. I mean, we have to have a theory of power. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I would say is if you just look at history, that that we, we've been under capitalism for about 200, 250 years, and we've basically only seen the working class being the agent that's effectively been able to build this kind of significant counterpower to, to actually countervail the power of capital in history. Now, that Thea is exactly right. Like that power has been completely demobilized and eroded for the last 50 years. And I wanted to quote Adolf Reed, who's, who calls neoliberalism as just capitalism without a labor opposition, right? Because <laughs> we basically can look through history and we have these moments of strong unions and labor-based political parties. And that is what really built the institutional power that really challenged capital, which is who we need to challenge to solve this issue. So I would argue we do need um, to revision and try to think about how can we build, rebuild, I would say, a working class opposition, a working class movement, because uh, it's not just that the working class is morally superior or anything like that. It's that they have this strategic capacity that because they do the work, because they um, produce the profits for capital, they can organize and challenge that power. And we've seen that through history. and. And and also, just as I try to put in the, the book, I mean, we're talking about the, the mass majority of society is in this kind of working class. There's just a study that was published today that shows and even the, the rich global north United States, 61 percent of, of, of people in this country live paycheck to paycheck. The majority of people in even Germany and the United States are struggling through decades of austerity are really, and, and they have a material interest in change in fundamentally transforming these, these systems. And that's exactly what we need to do. Um, there's so much I could say, Thea. So, but I, I want, the last thing is there, there's the question of the, the, the kind of class stratum you might call the, the PMC or the professional class. And, Thea is exactly right. Like throughout history, when the working class movements and socialist movements were really powerful, they always had these layers of people in their movements, you know, Marx and Lenin <laughs> among them, you know, these professional revolutionaries, these people in the parties and the unions that were really guiding often. They're really often the leaders of these movements. Um, but what I try to make the case I try to make in the book is that um, there's nothing inherently wrong with professional class people doing politics or doing socialist politics, but if if their form of politics is kind of antagonistic to the larger mass of the people and kind of um, is seen by the masses as against their interests and antagonistic to them, that's where we run into problems. So we actually definitely need people like us, uh, PMC people, to be in these movements, but we have to make sure we're building movements and strategies that are looking outward towards the masses of, of struggling workers who need to who we need to win these movements to build a mass movement and kind of have a message and have a program that can really answer the the fact that that capitalism sucks for the vast majority of people and that we have something to offer them and so um, I will stop there
Um, thanks, Matt. I appreciate you uh, kind of articulating your argument, but also like addressing to some of the, the challenges in the question. Um, uh, anyone is free to jump in. Um, you know, some of what you said at the end reminds me a lot of, of Femi's analysis of elite capture. I don't know if that's something he's connected to the climate movement in this specific way. So feel free or not to take up that offer. Um, Drew and, and Andrea also have thought a lot about these questions. So thoughts on on what the class composition is of an eco-socialist movement um, and also maybe just how to address some of the obvious barriers to working class agency in this in this moment. I have a lot of things to say, but I'll, I'll start with a couple. Um, so I agree that it is about power. Um, and I also agree that people have an objective material interest in switching to from capitalism to a system that won't destroy the planet. Right. Um, but on the other side of the cold war, and on the other side of decades of, I think, quite successful far-right organizing um, to promote a kind of fortress climate nationalism, which is most visible when we talk about um, immigration and far-right responses to immigration, demonizing immigrants, um, particularly non-white immigrants. Um, you know, it's, it's not clear to me, you know, there, there is an open question about what it is going to take to build class, you know, climate consciousness. I think that's how you put it in your book, Matt, right? Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I do think that it, it does lead me to take a much more granular view about what the coalitions are going to be that are likely to produce anything in the general direction of climate justice. Should it be the entire working class? Yeah. Might it just be, you know, construction workers who stand to benefit in a really, you know, in a really particular way from all the buildouts of, uh, energy transmission infrastructure or something like that. Um, maybe, may, you know, maybe that's the way forward, right? Um, and I just think, you know, I think we, okay, last thing I'll say before I shut up, um, you know, there, there's a way of making this question a little overly theoretical, right? Like, you know, who, op, who is in a position to shut down the point of production abstractly? Um, and... I think that is at odds with the view that, you know, what we need to do is rigorously think about power, who has it and how we can get it right. The geopolitics are very solidly against us. Um, we, we may have the numbers, but we don't have, um, many of the other kinds of resources, so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to need a mass movement, um, but I doubt that the mass movement is going to congeal on anything except the project itself, trying to get the job done. Whoever's trying to do that is on the team, you know, whether they're 
you know, from whether they're in what we would call the peasantry or what we would call the industrial proletariat or whether they're care workers. You know, if you're on team climate justice, you're on the team. And I don't think there's a further thing to say than that. But that's my position. Um, Andrea, I think, had something to add here, too. Yeah, I just thought about what Matt said, like um, that we're under capitalism for 300 years, but like we're also under colonialism for 500 years and under patriarchy for 5,000 years. So I think we should also think about those because I think the most likely in regarding the power structures as they are now is that somehow this kind of capitalism as we know it will end in all this uh, climate crisis tackling over, you know, and we will end up with some kind of new feudalism, super unjust system that will increase all kinds of injustice worldwide. Um, and I think to, to really have something against this threat, I do not really do not see that this classical Marxist male working class, mostly white industrial worker will be the main subject of this kind of revolution. Um, because I think they are very much, um, I mean, they gained a lot in the last 50 years in the global north from all these injustices. And so actually, I don't think that the main impulses will come from the global north at all. Um, I think we in the global north could be allies to anti-colonial fights, to feminist fights and struggles um, all over the place. And of course, we <laughs> do have them in our own countries too. Um, but I really think there, there has to be a kind of a broad coalition of movements, um, including those other struggles. Um, maybe something like we've seen recently in, um, in Chile, where socialists work with feminist and indigenous groups and um, achieved the recent victory. Um, I think those kinds of coalitions are really crucial and um, yeah, maybe more later. <laughs> yeah, we will have another question, assuming time actually on some of these issues of international solidarity. And I, I do appreciate the Chile, Chile reference. I do think it's a, really a, a hope for the world in many ways. Um, Drew, um, if you'd like to weigh in, I know you sort of started to address this in your in the prior intervention. Do, did you have more that you wanted to add um, in response? I can just be very quick. I can say that I think um, I think it's true that the working class has you know a lot of leverage, right, to shut down things. Um, I think that uh, looking in the U.S. context, some of the movements that have a lot of 
inspirational power, like uh, teacher strikes, uh, you know, the bargaining for the common good, right? Um, this idea that we we will strike, we'll shut down social reproduction, we'll shut down the schools in the U.S. in order to push for things like green spaces for um, smaller class sizes, for things that are not related to the classical wage benefits striking, but to uh, the benefit of the community. Um, that is sort of, I think, an inspirational tactic, and it's directing us to maybe a um, maybe the PMC radicalism. I don't know what you want to consider teachers, uh, but I think um, I think that's uh, really really important. Um, I think um, you know after this, I'm going to go down the street to a Starbucks that's on strike. Starbucks workers may not be able to shut down production uh, in a way that brings the system to a halt. But I think there is something incredibly that about participating in these sorts of solidarity movements that transforms individuals into the sort of person that we would need on our side on team climate. Um, and these, these sorts of struggles, um, are, I think, completely intertwined, uh, in, in this same project. And I really like, uh, and Andrea's book, this idea of movement and movements, and we, we are, make a case for this in our book as, as well, you know, in the U S context, right. Feminist organizing, Looks like it, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, there's a lot to organize around, I guess, uh, is maybe one very optimistic way of looking at certain developments. <laughs> so, I mean, th this is, and Chile is the example of what happens when this works. And, and Ireland is another example of massive change brought by these movements. Um, and uh, uh, movements for Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement, that was the biggest movement getting us into the streets. So I think looking for this power in all these places is necessary to us. Um, and I don't think they're in conflict at all. I think all of these things are transformative to individuals. And I think they're also uh, help us build the power we need to change the world. Um, great. Thanks, everyone, for really thoughtful answers to that. I'm going to kind of uh, put us uh, a little bit ahead of where we are in reality and kind of assume that that these movements have won, whatever winning looks like and whatever, you know, specific form that that takes. And I want to kind of tackle the question of, of governance. Um, and I think that even prior to winning, the question of how we might govern is actually quite important, both because, you know, those policy proposals can have influence even before, you know, substantial victories occur, um, but also because, you know, in the event of success, you want to be prepared for it. And as someone that you know, has learned a lot from and studied closely left-wing governments in Latin America, some of which have just been referenced. I think that's a moment where both a lot of creativity can happen, but also a lot of challenges occur. Like you arrive to power and then what, right? And I think those challenges are for obvious reasons, amplified in the peripheries of the world system, but they are also not alien to the power centers of the world system. So let me go to eco-socialist governance. I guess my question is like, what is distinct about the socialist approach to climate environmental energy policy? Is it about the emphasis on planning over markets um, or profits? And I think, you know, Drew's book speaks most directly to this, though actually so does Matt's. Is it about public ownership, something that uh, both Matt and um, Andrea's book take up in different ways? But is that public ownership like the state? Is it something more um, um, diffuse as, as Andrea already brought up of the commons or social ownership or community ownership? So, you know, how do we think about, should we focus more on production or consumption? We've already heard a little bit about that today. So in short, like what are the policy tools that distinguish an eco-socialist approach and how are they like specifically equipped to mitigate the climate crisis and other forms of environmental uh, destruction? Um, so uh, governance thoughts. 
Pete Bad going first because I want to talk around the question a little bit. Go for it. Um, but you know, I, but but I think it's an important implication of the thing you just said, right? So, um, imagine winning. Imagine being in charge. Then what? Right? What's day after the revolution or whatever? Right? Um, and the answer to that question, you know, the degree of room for maneuver is in pretty direct way a question about what remains, right? What accumulations remain in terms of physical infrastructure, in terms of knowledge infrastructure, in terms of, you know, I mean, it depends on what kind of revolution we're imagining, but, you know, in terms of literal kind of fiscal flexibility, right? Um, how much, how many dollars or pesos or yen or whatever do you have at your disposal? Um, what's the level of control you have over your currency? Do you even have a currency, right? Um, and those questions are distributive, you know, at the, at the global level, right? There's, you know, this is the reason why a lot of my focus here has been on reparations, you know, not because I, I hate standard Marxist ways of talking or, you know, but because of this kind of very tangible, practical thing, right? What will be possible in the event of a left takeover of the United States is very different from what will be possible in the event of a left takeover of Namibia or whatever. And there are very concrete historical reasons for that. So if the goal we're imagining, like we all said in response to the very first question, is a world where many worlds fit, but all of those worlds relate to the other worlds on terms of solidarity, right? Can we do that without broad redistribution across the national state lines that currently kind of guide our political imaginaries often? Um, and know clearly i have a particular take on that i think the answer is no but um i just wanted to flag that yeah i'll jump off from there um and in in our book we 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 think about this uh this kind of interplay between uh the environmental crisis being a global crisis right the co2 levels uh, are a global number. CO2 is a well-mixed gas. Um, it is accumulates everywhere and affects everyone, not equally, um, but it does. It is a global variable. And at the same time, there is also local uh, dynamics uh, in terms of what people want on a local level, in terms of how people want to govern themselves. This is also important in terms of buy-in, like making sure People feel as though this system is legitimate, that they are part of it. Like this is sort of the deep democracy idea. So that sort of local control is is important, too. And the question is, how can we reconcile the fact that we are all deeply interdependent on each other, especially in the world where we live in now, where food comes from all over and in a climate world where there will be more and more crises in multiple breadbasket regions, right? Like the higher the temperatures, the more likely it is for multiple crop failures all at once. Uh, the fact that, as Femi was pointing out, that we're inheriting a broken world that is highly unjust in terms of who has what in a spatial sense, all this means that there is deep interconnections that are just have to be thought about. Like what I do here in my locality will impact 
people elsewhere. So in our book, we kind of think about this idea of course planning or like this idea of very broad agreement on maybe some some key parameters that we might want to have govern ourselves, like how much energy should we have, uh, how much uh, you know, what kind of food we should produce and, and how much, um, you know, should we be growing a bunch of meat, uh, which takes up a lot more land or should we do these other things? And the, the, the whole point of this is that everything affects everyone and democracy involves like, you know, these sorts of debates. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be coerced by this decision in some like super top down way. The hope is that these set broad constraints and then sort of maybe we imagine kind of climate federalism or uh, maybe a, a pluriverse is a, maybe another way of putting it like a connected pluriverse, many different areas living in many different ways, widely different interpretations, but constrained in some material way by the fact that we are all interconnected and we all have this radical interdependence. So in our book, we try and tackle this, um, but I'll, I'll stop talking there. <laughs> No, that was that was great. And I appreciate how actually, despite me not asking it, people are articulating this question of scale, right? And I depending on the time, we may have time for a question that is precisely about internationalism, um, and also current geopolitics, but I'll, I'll save that um, and just turn it over to anyone else that might want to take up this governance um, piece. Yeah, maybe just trying to be short, as sure. I mentioned, as I mentioned before, I think there is a um, being realistic on the level of municipalities and on the level of regions, of cities, of, um, yeah, I think there is much more to win just being realistic, looking at what the last 50 years of international negotiations have brought us, like ever-rising emissions. I mean, of course, I hope with all of you that there could be the possibility to win over power um, in a big nation state like the US. Of course, that would change a lot, but it's not very likely. And so I think we should not wait for that maybe to happen. Um, of course, we should organize for that and aim for that and struggle for that, but not wait, but really start right here and now where we live in our cities, our villages, to change um, the policies there, to take part in a democratic decision organs there, um, because there's a lot, especially on the mat material structure, it really changes a lot, like what kind of public buildings you build, um, what kind of energy you use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we shouldn't wait, but do that in as much much places in the world as possible, and also link um, and connect between those places. If if I could just, um, and I'm very sorry, I, I promised myself I wouldn't be too defensive in this debate, but I have to really push back on on the idea that classical socialism is about white male Europeans, and and you know. In 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 the heyday of let's say the second international, I mean that the idea was a socialist revolution was going to not just end capitalism and not just liberate the working class, but abolish patriarchy and and be about the emancipation of of women from oppression. And also, you also can just look throughout the 20th century and where you see successful 
anti-colonial movements, you often see the influence of Marxism. And it's it's in Asia, it's in Latin America, it's in the Middle East, you have Marxism that really built movements from these theories that were not just anti-capitalist, they were anti-colonial and they were about ending oppression of, of, of all kinds. Um, so in terms of governance, I mean, I want to say I really enjoyed like uh, Half Earth book, like the discussion of planning, because I think planning is like at the core of, of what we need to do. And I really like the discussion in the book of, about what neoliberalism is. And, and honestly, what capitalism is, is just seeding the economy to this unconscious anarchic uh, market system. And, and we just have to hope that that market system uh, uh, works on its own to solve all these entrenched crises. And, and ultimately what we need to think about is taking social control over this crisis and actually consciously planning things like energy resources and things like that. Um, but in terms of like the, who's going to be part of the, the, the governance though, I think we as socialists also have to really take seriously that if we're going to be planning um, particularly things like energy, we have to take, we have to actually put at a on, a on a strategic pedestal the the workers in the energy system that that understand the electrical grid understand what it takes to actually keep uh keep electricity running keep hospitals filled with power keeping uh and and so i think um you know there's a tendency on uh, the climate left to kind of assume a lot of the building trades and the industrial unions are kind of problematic and reactionary and business unionist. But if we don't have those workers on our side in this fight, like strategically, it's a, it's a disaster because they still actually have a lot of power in, in shaping um, the nature of this energy transition. So we really have to do a much better job of kind of not as organizers, not telling unions like what they need to do to solve this uh, apocalypse of the climate crisis, but actually listening. That's the best, you know, Jay McAlevey, the secret of organizing is listening and listening to what unions and industrial workers in the very energy system we need to transform. What do they think we need to do to solve climate change? What do they? And, and so I actually, I don't think, um, I think we have to be more serious and say, we're not just saying, you know, um, our movement is whoever's for climate justice and team climate. We actually have to say there's certain workers and there's certain strategic um, parts of the economy that we have to focus on that are at the core of this very, you know, industrial challenge to, to change our energy system on the scale that's needed on a planetary level is ultimately an, a, a challenge of engineering and industrial production. And if we don't have the workers that know how those systems work on our side, we're, we're not equipped to win. So I'll stop there. Um, thanks, Matt. And, and I do appreciate again um, that we are threading through themes that have come up and that will come up. I'm going to give um, Andrea, just like a minute to add something um, uh, and try to stick to that because I have two more questions that I'm trying to do in about 10 to 15, uh, but go for it. Yeah, thanks a lot. I just wanted to add that 
I think the transition needed is not an industrial transition alone. Of course, this is part, but like I think the even as big or even bigger is like the social cultural transformation we need for that because we in an ever if we ever need more energy this cannot be solved in a globally just way even not also not with uh, like solar technologies or, or or other technologies because these technologies in itself are also imperial technologies they need materials and resources from countries in other places and i think we need in the global south to downsize our energy demand and not everybody the same but like the rich people a lot and the poor not and this would be possible um well i'll just take the lead and go into the international sphere from that jumping off point that Andrea provided me with. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm definitely in favor of thinking through supply chains uh, and material flows globally. And, and I think that that also resonates in a few of the books quite explicitly. So you're welcome to take that angle on this question or other angles. So I sort of two sets of questions, but I'm going to pose them separately to not be overwhelming, but both of them relate to like the planetary scale. So you know, one is something that, that Andrea has brought up um, and that Femi also brought up through um, uh, referencing his work on refera reparations, but, you know, how can eco-socialists based in the U.S. or Europe act directly in solidarity and, and, you know, beyond maybe superficial notions of symbolic allyship, but like more directly coordinate with movements, trade unions, even progressive governments elsewhere in the world? What does that coordination look like? Um, and if you feel like able to comment on it, not just north-south, but also south-south, I mean, I don't think we need to think of just one axis of, of solidarity, um, though that's the way it's often posed. Um, and I guess, you know, the real challenge for me uh, is like how some cross-border coordination addresses, can address or might um, unfortunately not address in some circumstances, the colonial and neo-colonial contours of the climate crisis, the very real material disparities between communities around the world that Matt actually referenced earlier in terms of energy poverty, um, and the just really deeply unequal responsibility for causing the climate crisis in the first place, a responsibility that we could assign along national lines or we could assign along class lines that cut across nations, right? I mean, there's different ways to think about global inequality. And, and I don't, I'm not pushing us to stay within the container of the nation state. But I think we all agree that global inequality and oppression are constitutive of the development of capitalism, right? And therefore of also the climate crisis. So how do we do internationalism today is the question um, it's from a more specifically like eco-socialist perspective. Um, thoughts, um, thoughts there. I, I can jump in. I'm sorry. Um, don't apologize. Go for it. Uh, one flaw that I flag in my book is it's way too U.S. focused, way too focused on U.S. politics. But I do think we have to sort of reckon with the, the U.S. empire if we want to think about how we approach this from an internationalist point of view, because ultimately we have to identify that um, the United States has been the biggest, not only historical emitter, but also the largest barrier to international climate cooperation. I mean, 
the most egregious case probably being Obama in 2009, just completely um, short-circuiting the negotiations. And so, you know, I, I haven't seen many hopeful moments in U.S. politics about how the U.S. could be a leader, but I will say it was nice to see one candidate for president in 2020, Bernie Sanders, who had a robust international um program to fund decarbonization all over the world. And I think that's why it matters to kind of build power here is that the U.S. is also the fiscal core of empire, financial core of empire, the dollar hegemony. And and actually, if we could build a kind of left climate politics in the U.S. that could actually use some of that fiscal capacity to help decarbonize the world and help help, um, deal with those really serious issues of of not just energy poverty, but just utter miserable poverty amongst billions of people around the planet. Um, And if we could start, I mean, that's to me, the heart of the Green New Deal vision is that we can solve climate change and we can solve poverty at the same time. Um, But uh, I also think sometimes in, in climate spaces, we kind of think too much about North versus South and not about capital versus workers, because there's an international capitalist class and there's an international working class. You could even say there's an international peasant class and and class of campesinas and indigenous peoples. And and we need to think about how those networks of of forces uh, can be aligned to fight a very well-organized global capitalist class who's, you you can argue neoliberalism has been a multi-decade global class project amongst capital to organize the globe for their own um, gain. And so if we can, you know, think about ways, you know, back in the Lenin days of workers peasant alliance and thinking about building kind of mass power amongst workers, peasants, indigenous peoples to build that kind of global international coordination that I think Femi's work's been drawing off thinking about like these histories of internationalism and these internationalist infrastructures that actually had some material power and did material things that actually had real world making consequences. So um, that, that, that I think reviving that kind of socialist internationalism, I think is, is, is really key. Thanks, Matt. Um, other thoughts here on uh, internationalism, solidarity, and also like this, just this question of global inequality and in, in, in climate specifically. So um, I think my perspective on this kind of maybe will answer a little bit Matt's challenge from before, right? So um, on the previous round, you know, Matt makes the point that, well, look, um, people are going to have to actually build the new infrastructure, whether it's for energy transmission or retrofitting, um, those are workers, that's labor. Um, so, you know, it's a little too dismissive to just say, you know, anybody who's ideologically aligned with climate justice should be, you know, who we think of as a revolutionary subject. And um, I, I I think it's a good point. Uh, I guess what I would say back to it is just, um, following up on what Andrea said, which is like, look, we're talking about a total social transformation, right? And that involves a lot of sectors. It doesn't involve them evenly or to the same extent. 
right? Construction is a very important one. Um, but the fact that it is a total social transformation is something that is that sh we should think of as exploitable. Um, and we've seen in in particular uh, something Drew brought up earlier, the bargaining for the common good movement, a way that we could get from other sectors of workers to the kinds of things I think we want more generally. You know, teachers in uh, you know West Virginia saying, you know, here here's what we should do with revenues from you know from with state revenues from fossil fuels, right? Uh, that's something that you can bargain over with a bargaining good for the common good perspective, even though teachers are teachers and that's not the particular sector that they work on. So, so what I don't mean to say is we should just think about what it is, what opinions people have and think that's what makes you a potentially revolutionary subject. Um, but we should recognize that um, the kinds of power we're able to build are flexible and we can use those kinds of power transnationally. Um, so to finally get to your question, Dia, I think, you know, if we had more robust networks of unions that were on team, you know, bargaining for the common good or, or however we want to think about that more broad use of union power of worker leverage, I think that's the kind of thing um, that we could use across state borders in really promising ways. Very interesting. Um, other thoughts on this, knowing that we do have another global queue that'll be more on the global political economy and geopolitics and whatnot, but other thoughts that folks want to weigh in on this question of solidarity and cross-border coordination? I'll just say real quick that I think um, I think that it is true that uh, capital versus worker capital versus labor is a useful category of thinking, but I think it doesn't mean that we should hide at a global stage this sort of nation state, north south sort of uh, pole. That is incredibly important, right? In the history, right? Capital is a social relation. You produce the commodity, but also the commodity needs to be bought and you need to have your MC in prime sort of circuit completed. And part of this, the way this works is you produce, you know, consumer markets. You have, you know, these domestic markets in the US and Europe and, and, and Japan historically that are consuming these goods or allowing the capitalist commodity circuit to go. And that has led to a real historical disparity between North and South. Um, that is that is real, and it is very important. Um, and it also on this in this this sort of national policy lines, like the way the U.S. transportation system works, right? Like a lot of transportation miles for people going to work doesn't mean that it's someone's personal fault that they have to drive to work a long way, but it does mean that they are driving to work a long way, and that is producing a lot of energy use and a lot of emissions. And that is a real problem that is specific to like the U.S., not just to a capital labor struggle. So I, I just want to highlight that, that that struggle is real and, and needs to be kind of uh, acknowledged and, and used. And I think that's part of why I, I push in our book that energy use has to be cut in, in these places. Uh, commodity throughputs have to be cut. Um, this doesn't need to be in a way that's austerity, like it can be a way that's like uh, liberation and, and new ways of thinking, new ways of being. But it does require a deeper transformation than the just unplugging uh, one power plant and plugging in a new one. Um, Very interesting. Um, Andrea, uh, any thoughts here before um, while we're still on this question? 
Yeah, I could maybe add something that's a bit um, cut through your answers, like from another angle. Um, coming back to the comments, I really think a very important part of international solidarity is the networking of people already organized in commons or in commons um, communities and really on a material level um, exchange not only ideas but exchange also goods outside of the market like organize food and this can be organized um, in nation borders or like at very big distances. But I think this really brings in a lot more people in international um, networking if it's not only about the talk, which is basically what academics do, but if it's about the food or other um, things you need for your daily life. And to organize this within the old structures, within capitalist structures, it is possible to also organize non-market exchange. And I think this is very crucial to start with that immediately and do it. Um, great, thank you. Um, and uh, and all of you for super interesting answers that, that engaged my question, but also kind of added some new elements to it, I think. Um, I'm gonna stay on this um, on this theme, as I said, of the global, but this one allows for also maybe more like uh, sort of national or local policy or movement uh, responses. So you don't have to respond at the global scale. But I do want to outline, you know, some features of our current geopolitical and economic conjuncture, which a conjuncture that strikes me personally as like very contradictory. Like I have trouble even holding it all together because it's changing quickly and in different directions that feel in tension with one another. That also makes it, I think, a really good object of collective analysis, right? Because we'll probably pick on different pieces of it. But, you know, if we want to advance degrowth, working class climate politics, reparations, half-birth socialism, you know, again, just the, 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 the main concepts that we're working with today, um, we're doing so in this world that is like constantly dramatically changing, right? And, you know, just to name a few of the current events, crises, um, uh, issues, you know, per pervading our societies, we have, you know, Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine with no clear end in sight. We have the sanctions in response to that that themselves have played into a variety of economic tr troubles that are most acutely felt in the global south, but are also being felt, you know, in the global north, such as inflation, looming recessions, um, stalled recoveries from a pandemic that is also itself not over in any you know, shape or form. We also, Andrea just mentioned food, we have deepening food crises that are not about the lack of food, right? So you know, a socialist analysis is really important here. It's about the distribution and the mode of production of that food. Um, you know, so we have that crisis um, triggering a hunger crisis. Um, we have, of course, something that Femi has spoken about and written about, unsustainable sovereign debt levels in the global south that are intersecting more and more acutely with the climate crisis, ravaging those societies. Um, we have ratcheting tensions between the U.S. and China. And, of course, we have accelerating global warming. I'm currently kind of sweating in this room as I'm moderating, right? I'm in New England, like not a super hot part of the world, but, you know, the extreme weather continues apace. So, you know, this is what I take to be our global conjuncture. 
I guess there's a couple ways we could think about this and I'll just lay two paths out, but take it up however you want, really. Um, this is one of our final questions. So one set of, one way to think about this is like, does this mess of, of a world um, provide openings for fossil capitalism to kind of reassert itself? Um, we're seeing some of that, obviously, in this energy crisis and the response to it um, by fossil capital. Um, or is it providing openings for renewable energy and green capitalism, but again, kind of under the banner of, of private investment? Like what fragment of capital is kind of winning here and how do we as eco-socialists respond to that? That's one route to take. Another um, would be to think through how all this messiness um, complexifies what we said about international solidarity. So you can feel free to add more there. Um, but another way to talk about this is like, how did these broad global conditions shape possibilities kind of in the here and now, as Andrea has pointed us to? Um, are you like more pessimistic or more hopeful than you were a year or two ago? Like, does this all of this mess of unpredicted stuff, the pandemic, the, you know, the war, et cetera, like, does that feel like the world's closing in on us or does it feel like unexpected opportunities are opening up? So throwing a huge grab bag at you, but I just want us to take up like where the world is today in, in a global sense, but, and that, how that impacts, you know, the projects that we're, we're committed to. I'll go really quick and hopefully this will give the rest of you time to be, make a more intelligent answer than I will <laughs> offer. But, um, I think that the COVID, the lessons of COVID are yet to be learned, but I, I still think back to those first few months where we saw people making massive transformations uh, that I didn't think was really possible at this current moment, like um, massive sacrifices being made for the greater good. Um, and of course, this didn't last uh, entirely, but um, it was it was sort of shocking a little bit how how much things were able to shut down so quickly and how much support there was and these emergence of all these cooperative efforts to help each other. I mean, I think that that made me optimistic about the capacity of our, our ability to dramatically change in the way that is necessary. Uh, on the other hand, fossil capital is doing very well right now. They're having a great year. There's nothing like wars and high resource prices to give you some nice super profits and, you know, would increase that nice dividend, uh, get a new jet maybe. Um, uh, things look good for them. Um, I think there's nothing automatic about a crisis making something better or worse. It's about who is organized to take advantage of that crisis. And currently, uh, capital and, and fossil capital are, are organized to take advantage of it. But that doesn't mean that that will remain true. One quick thing I'll add to that. Um, I, I really like the point Drew just ended with, right? It, it, you know, who pre the levels of organization before the crisis kind of determined, right? You know, uh, where things go after. Uh, and there were two groups of people um, or groups of organizations before the COVID crisis who were well prepared, at least by the looks of it. Um, one being the Pfizer's and Moderna's of the world. God, were they ready for, for a crisis of exactly that character. Um, but also, weirdly enough, was Cuba. Um, and so that's the kind of question that I, I have again, jumping off the first thing Drew said, you know, the lessons haven't been learned quite yet, but, um, what kind of 
you know, I mean, Cuba's public health position has been built over decades and its quality is due to the fact that it was very deliberately built public health system uh, and, you know, so on and so forth. But how do we get that kind of organization and preparedness in more places of the world? Um, Because there will be other crises and we know the Pfizer's of the world are going to be ready. Um, But what are we doing? Um, And I'll just end by saying this. I think a lot of times people speak dismissively, you know, especially folks from kind of Marxist and socialist traditions speak kind of dismissively of um, kinds of local efforts to build, you know, kind of community level food sovereignty, those kinds of things. Um, And I think, you know, that's a real missed opportunity from a materialist perspective. I think it is very politically meaningful, actually, um, to what extent you really are dependent on the market. Um, And that is actually something that we can do something about, even in advance of the total revolution to take down all of capitalism. We can actually be less dependent on Pfizer if we make certain kinds of decisions now. We can't actually be less dependent on the global food system if we make certain kinds of decisions now in our where we live. And those are things we should take more seriously. Uh, you know, there's you know, everybody should follow this uh, cat build soil on on Twitter. I've been very chestnut built, you know. Um, I just happen to live in a part of the world where chestnuts grow. That's one kind of food system intervention you can do. But, you know, there's lots of kinds of things like that. Um, So let me stop there. I could jump in. Um, I really agree with Drew that it's clear in 2022 we are losing this badly. I saw an article by U.S. News and World Report about the best performing stocks of 2022. And five were coal companies and four were oil and gas related. These, these firms right now are hitting record profits. They're doing great and they're expanding all over the world. And it should be clear again, that this is a power struggle. And unless we can figure out a a, a social force that stops them from doing this, we're, we're very much doomed. I, I hate, I hate to say, and, um, I actually, I'll throw my hat in, in in the more skeptical of small scale local commoning type solutions because I don't think those really have the capacity to build that kind of power. And um, I'll quote the communist political theorist Jody Dean, who made a T-shirt that says Goldman Sachs doesn't care if you raise chickens. <laughs> this idea that like if we create small scale little food co-ops, that that really challenges the power of the of the you know like um, Cargill that controls our food system in the way it does. It, I think what I try to argue in the book is that what capitalism does is it takes the mass of the people and forces them to to be dependent on the market to survive. So for millions billions of people around the planet, their main threat to survival is the market itself, and and. And you can find non-market ways to survive in these little pockets, but we actually on the left have to offer bigger, more collective forms of public provision that can really be an answer on the scale of millions of people 
if we want to actually convince those millions of people that struggle in an inflationary market to survive that we actually offer something to them. We can't offer just small co-ops and, and urban gardens and, and the rest of it. Um, but I want to answer Thea's question about where we go from here and where we're at right now, because I actually think I was thinking about this the other day that when you actually go back to the vision of the Green New Deal, and you, if you listen to some of the policy architects like Rihanna Gunn-Wright from New Consensus, who kind of visioned what the Green New Deal was going to do, they always they had these plans that it was going to be really launched when we hit the next recession or depression, right? And there was this idea that we had 2008, there was going to be another crash soon. And that's when the Green New Deal was really going to be viable because it's ultimately going to be things like a job guarantee and public works jobs programs, which really work like in the original New Deal in, the, in, a, in, a, in a kind of capitalist crisis um, where you really need to put people to work. Now, that this these ideas were in 2018, 2019, and then we kind of thought we hit that crisis with COVID, but that was not your ordinary uh, recession or depression in capitalism. It was this weird shutdown of the economy that kind of threw supply chains out of whack. And then as we've seen from the recovery from COVID, it's like this weird inflationary booming tight labor market that's very much not a recessionary type um, situation. But, and this is where we can be careful what we wish for, it seems pretty clear that there will be a recession soon. <laughs> there will be, uh, you know, we haven't had a real serious recession since 2008. If we know capitalism, we know that can't this weird kind of asset bubble economy that the Fed kind of pumps up cannot last forever. And there's going to be a crash soon. There's going to be a recession soon. It's going to be bad. And, and actually, I think that might be um, a really good opportunity for the right, obviously, but it also could be a good opportunity for reviving, resuscitating this kind of Green New Deal politics, which is ultimately going to be about jobs and putting people to work when capitalism wouldn't. Um, and so, uh, you know, you don't want to wish for a recession, but it might really change the terrain of the politics and give us some opportunities that we really need right now. Um, well, you set me up perfectly for this final question that also kind of runs through all of the answers to the prior question. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking of what Femi was saying about Cuba and also food sovereignty, but also what Matt is saying about future opportunities, what Drew was saying about, you know, positive and negative lessons take from COVID. So the final question here, you can elaborate on those examples or you can throw out new ones is, you know, I feel remiss if I do, a, you know, moderate a panel on, on the climate crisis to not give people a sense of like what struggles they should be paying attention to, what campaigns, what victories either recent or maybe on the horizon are relevant. Um, you know, I know that we're all aware that climate lends itself for very good material reason to a kind of doomerism or apocalyptic scenario. But I think we all also know that those are blockages to politics and commitment and that, you know, just feeling like everything sucks doesn't per se get people involved. Um, it's a mix of everything sucking and maybe I could do something about it with comrades, right? And so it's the latter part that I want to focus on just to end with, like, um, and maybe be a little briefer here than you have been, because I'd like a nice array of, like, what what movements, what campaigns, they can be strikes, they can be electoral, they can, you know, any range of tactics. 
Um, what keeps you grounded and committed? Like understanding, you know, from Marion Kaba that hope is a discipline, not Pollyannish optimism. This is, I think, about keeping us moving forward rather than about um, having some misplaced hope that everything will be fine. Um, you know, so in that light, like what, what inspires you um, or what forms of collective action, even if they're, they're, um, their goals have not been met yet, you think is most important for folks to actually get involved in or at least kind of pay attention to and be aware of. So on that note, I'll just open it back up to our panel um, and yeah, let us know what you're thinking about along these lines. Yeah, I mean, I mean trying to get back also to the last question, as we also wrote in the book, I think we need like this triple transformation strategy, like to, to wake desires and build um, food corps in the now and here and uh, live in housing projects in the now and here and live in extended families in the now and here and growing our chickens in the now and here because it really helps giving love and being loved and um, in all this struggle and uh, accom accommodating uh, refugees that come over the border and everything, you know, like giving this daily care. It's so important not only to sit on your desk and write texts because also Goldman Sachs doesn't care for your texts and Goldman Sachs also doesn't care for if my child is starving or not, but I do care. And it's why I am um, having a chicken, you know, I don't think about Goldman Sachs all day um, because that would also like make me too sad. <laughs> um, and so also where comes a lot of energy from is not only like building something like good food, but also doing resistance that can be so empowering, like really go there like a lot of young people do, for example, here in Germany, and they go on the trees and really resist new streets that are wanted to be built or they do resist in the lignite mines. And this is so important to come together and to really bodily go there um, against the, all the resource extraction. Um, and of course, then uh, there is some non-reformist reforms, as we say, it's some planned transition important. And again, I really would um, encourage everybody to join in that on his or her local level, because there is democratic organs in every village, in every city, And to really go there and engage and try to change the local politics. Um, this is really a good thing to do and a very important thing that a lot of us do it. I'll be very brief that I don't believe we can win without a revived labor movement. And there's a lot of exciting things with the labor movement right now. You have union elections skyrocketing. You had a labor notes conference with, I think, 4,000 people and people learning how to build power and organize, rebuild the labor movement. So that uh, things like organizing power in Amazon warehouses and stuff like that really gives me hope and excitement. So I'll stop there. I just want to, I mean, there are a lot of things I could talk about, um, but I do want to give a huge shout out to the various divestment movements. Um, over the past year or two, huge organizations, Harvard, the Ford Foundation, um, a big French bank, um, 
a lot of religious organizations that are um, that have you know billions of dollars worth of assets um, networked with the Vatican have all announced some version of divestment, and the details are not where we want them to be. But the fact that that's happening at all, I think, is a major organizing victory, and it's the kind of um, it's the kind of you know, redistribution we can do. It's a kind of redistribution we can do on this side of the revolution. And, you know, I think it's a major victory to think about and to push for more of. Uh, one thing that I'm involved in tangentially is uh, UAWD, the democratization efforts in the UAW, the a big union in the U.S. Um, and this is an exciting example of uh, solidarity across uh, many kinds of workers, uh, higher education, law, and then the classic auto workers. Um, and there have been these big pushes at the, the recent convention to democratize the structure, push out old corrupt business union leadership and bring in a more rank and file strategy for transformation. And uh, the conversations have been so inspirational um, uh, and surprising. Um, I was at a conversation about um, organizing for electric vehicles, making electric vehicles uh, unionized, good unionized jobs. And uh, it was a great conversation, but it was also inspiring because some of the auto workers there were we're talking about should we be building electric vehicles at all or should we be building something more like public transit or other things it really was inspiring because i wasn't going to say anything like that because i'm i'm not a jerk i'm not going to try and step on auto workers toes but uh i think there's a really exciting capacity there i mean there's so much to do but it's there Wow. Thanks, Drew. I feel like you cherry picked that for me, but I'll just take it with, um, you know, the sort of thinking through of different transportation futures, supply chains, where workers sit in this whole process with their leverage, you know, democratizing the labor movement. I love all of that. And I love all the other examples, you know, divestment, uh, the strike activity and the sort of localized forms of political uh, and also subsistence that Andrea brought up. So I, you know, great array of responses there. I hope everyone watching feels compelled if they're not already involved to join in on the types of movements and union activity that we just discussed. Um, and I think hopefully understands that probably the main lesson of this panel, aside from, you know, the disagreements and also maybe more wonky points is that that's, that really is the only way forward, right. Um, through forms of collective action that, that strategically leverage the power of ordinary people to change the world in both senses, right? Um, to change the political economy of the world and the survivability of, of the world as a habitat. Um, so I'll leave it there. Um, again, an honor to moderate, and I appreciate you all um, keeping it comradely. And I think that those moments of disagreement were also extremely insightful. So I hope that the the audience um, learn from them too. Um, and yeah, we'll continue this conversation and struggle. Um, and uh, goodbye to everyone watching and we'll see y'all soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.